This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's talk some Super Bowl. It's always fun to celebrate a championship. The Kansas City Chiefs are doing that right now. They will have their parade on Wednesday. Just got an email from Al. I knew this was going to come in, and I love it. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about the fact that U.S. President Donald Trump congratulated the great state of Kansas. You know, where Kansas City is. (laughs) So to be a world leader, you don't actually have to know much about your country. No, you just have to get people to vote for you. Somehow that happened. Uh, Al says, fear not, Mike. I'm sure Trump will show us a new map of Kansas City with his trusty Sharpie. I'm sure he will. Well, I don't want to be wrong. So I'll just change everything so that I'm right. Now, how about you play the game the rest of us are playing? Please? No more on Trump right now. It's not worth the air, to tell you the truth. Let's go to the game itself. Let's look at some of the things that went on. From Andy Reid winning a championship, which was outstanding to see, to some of the chess match stuff that went on, to the officials who were under a lot of scrutiny this year, to the halftime show. Greg Brady joins us from Global News 640 Toronto. Greg, let's start with the halftime show. There were some loud voices that didn't like it. I don't know. It looked pretty normal to me. Didn't it look fairly normal to you? Good. Okay. So we'll just, yeah, we'll just shoot the shit about the game a little bit and... Mm. That'll be that. I'll get your thoughts Was on the halftime uh, show. Too lazy. I don't uh, like tackling that. Well, let, let's. Why don't we begin there? Okay. Well, it, Greg, even before we get to the actual game itself and the similarities that exist from the last time the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, when there was a Prime Minister Trudeau, a Queen Elizabeth II, uh, what else was happening? Australia was going through horrible wildfires. It, crazy things were going on, coincidentally. But the halftime show, people are starting to say it was, it was too much. This, didn't it look normal to you? It looked normal because it's 2020, Mike. I don't know whether it was as normal in 2000 or back 1990, where I think like a bunch of uh, you know people tried to get Madonna banned from playing what was Skydome back then on the Blonde Ambition tour because they thought it was pornographic. It's it's a strange one because I've seen Jennifer Lopez and Shakira be on the show be criticized because it it exploits it, it, it exploited towards women, and I'm all for like stopping women being exploited, but they're up there. They're controlling the tempo. I think they might have, I think J-Lo might have a strong say. I'm going to lean on an average to strong say in her career and the set list and the costumes and the dance moves. I could be nuts about that. So I don't know. I, I mean, well, we just, we, we were upset when um, Adam Levine took his shirt off last year uh, for Maroon 5. And now we're also upset by the showing of skin. So, I, I don't know. We all may need to wear uh, corduroys and turtlenecks uh, for the ne- And there are some bands that can arrange that, I think, <laughs> they can get for next year's uh, halftime in Tampa. I feel. Like in everything else, we've got people on that side, and then you've got people saying, you know, J-Lo looks that good. She should be able to wear all the bodysuits that she wants to. <laughs> yeah, they, they, would, uh, they would say that, and then at the same like. I think the juxtapose of how our, you know, your life, my life, our lives as broadcasters changed in every context post the uh, the Janet Jackson Nipplegate scenario in the 04-05 Super Bowl uh, when the Patriots were playing the, I want to say the Panthers. Now I always get that confused whether it's the Panthers or the Eagles. Either way, 
Um, and standards changed across conventional radio. Standards changed across television. And I'm going, yesterday seemed a little more racy than the Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake, quote-unquote, accident. But that's, again, that's me. And uh, and as you know, we've got a very loud minority out there. So when 2 3% of people don't like something, they make a big fuss, kick it up on social media, which we didn't have during the Janet Jackson incident. And then we don't you know, pay enough attention to the 96% that shrug their shoulders and say, that's life, doesn't bother me. I'm moving right along with uh, with what's happening with me. We're talking Super Bowl 54 with Greg Brady of Global News Radio AM 640 in, or you guys are just 640. Uh, we're talking Super Bowl 54 with Greg Brady from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Uh, Greg, let's turn to the game. Peter King had a really interesting assessment. and He kind of takes people behind the scenes and that he's putting together his column and he has a goat section every week, and he very quickly after the third quarter kind of cycled over and started to type, uh, Patrick Mahomes has had one of the worst games that he could possibly have under one of the brightest lights, and he started putting him into that category. And then the fourth quarter happened. Can you explain kind of the juxtaposition of the first three quarters and what we saw in the last one? Yeah, I think the 49ers just uh, were executing fantastically. Uh, Bosa was putting a lot of pressure. Uh, Nick Bosa was putting a lot of pressure. The rookie uh, defensive end on Patrick Mahomes, he got he got dinged a couple times with really hard hits when Mahomes was scrambling, notably uh, the goal line where he fumbled, and then they had to go for that weird fourth and one where they all did a, uh, a pirouette. Um, and it's it's strange, you know, but they're, if, if you believe in clutch in sports, Last night's Super Bowl is the, uh, you know, idyllic example of why you should and why it matters and why, you know, in baseball, you're going to treat your at-bat differently in Game 4 of the World Series than you will in, you know, late April when you're playing the Miami Marlins on a Tuesday night. So Patrick Mahomes came to play. Patrick Mahomes, you know, stood up by, uh, and his game started to stand up more down 20-10 to 10 in the fourth quarter. And I, you know, I was skeptical of whether he would even be named MVP. And if you look back in time, and I did this last night, there are some. Terry Bradshaw had a three interception game against the LA Rams uh, back in January of '81, and he was named MVP for a Pittsburgh Steelers team in which you could have picked a bunch of other guys. Joe Montana didn't have a great first Super Bowl against the Cincinnati Bengals at the Pontiac Silverdome. I want to say a couple of years later in. January 82 and so we've had quarterbacks because of the importance of the position and the leadership role um, not play fantastic football games and be the MVP I just I I just think this is still in my head and I don't know about you I think this is still a game in which you were going to say this was equal parts the 49ers letting it go and not doing the things they needed to, to cash in and close out as it is the Chiefs being down 10 points and going and getting it. it it's, a li- it's a lot of both, not a little of both. It's a lot of both factoring in this morning as we look back retrospectively. You've been a broadcaster for several Super Bowls. When they're looking to do that MVP selection at the end, is it as simple as passing around a tiny slip of paper and getting people to vote? How do they do it? Yeah, that is what happens. I think 30 writers, I, I've never had a pass through the broadcast booth, but I believe that there's a, a group of a, a 28 or 30 writers. I have voted on the Conn Smythe uh, at the Stanley Cup final. That's the weirdest thing of all, and I didn't know I was doing it that night. But it was at, uh, at Game 5 for Red Wings Hurricanes in 2002. Um, and I actually, I think Nick Lidstrom won it, and I think I voted for Sergei Fedorov, but that's me. 
So I didn't I didn't pick the right horse. Um, <laughs> but yeah, last night I think you could have made a case for Williams, the running back. He had a run touchdown, a pass touchdown. Now obviously the the last touchdown he had sealed the game and gave the Chiefs that eleven point lead instead of a a four point lead. But um, but I, I yeah I see the argument for Mahomes and. This this is also a game in which I'm a little surprised, given what a you know uniformly terrible year that the NFL referees had. That we we are talking more about two of the calls: one an offensive pass interference call on George Kittle right at the end of the half, and now the Niners were were sleepwalking through the opening you know couple plays of that possession where it looked, it's ten ten game, and they've got all three timeouts, and you figure use the timeouts, make something of this, like have some courage here, and then they finally get the courage and. They sort of ran out of time to put points on the board, but but also, Mike, the the call of the Chiefs' touchdown in which it, it did look like Williams' foot might have stepped out of bounds just before the ball crossed the uh, the threshold uh, of the uh, of the goal line. We would have had a fascinating fourth and short call for Andy Reid down three points at the at the you know one yard line, and you can either guarantee overtime for the Super Bowl or you can go and try and win it. That would have been fascinating. I, you know, I, I think the Chiefs were the overall better team, but the 49ers really, I thought, got jobbed on two of those calls, and it's not as much of a storyline as I thought it'd be today. Yeah, how many Super Bowl parties were doing that very thing where you looked and said, okay, well, if, if they overturn this and it's fourth and one, do you go for it? Do you not go for it? I think the conversation had just started when all of a sudden the decision came mm-hmm. back. No, it's, it's okay. It's a touchdown. Here we go. Yeah, I was a little surprised given that they, they review all the scoring plays as it is. So it's not a challenge flag that you got to throw if you're Kyle Shanahan, the Niners coach. But I was a little surprised um, they they stuck with the call on the field. But look, the the Niners had opportunities. Um, the one thing about this game to me also feels is that neither one of these feel like a one off. You can almost tell those teams that sort of caught fire, caught you know, just rode the magic carpet for three or four weeks in the playoffs. Look what Nick Foles did with the Philadelphia Eagles, and and I got sucked in thinking. Well, they're going to get Carson Wentz back healthy, and this will be. Uh, we're going to see the Eagles in more and more Super Bowls. I think the Rams started the conversation last year with Aaron Donald being the best defensive player in the league uh, for a couple years running, and, and the Rams' offense. And though they got really shut out in the last year's Super Bowl, not even to make the playoffs this year. And we know this. You know this is true, Mike, and I do too, and a lot of your listeners probably do. There's this Super Bowl loser curse where if you don't win that game. Outside of the Belichick Brady Patriots, a you're real unlikely likely to play in the Super Bowl the next year, but you're likely to miss the playoffs as well. It's ten out of the last nineteen Super Bowl losers have missed the playoffs the, the year after. It's real hard to see that with the San Francisco 49ers. It really is, but stranger things have happened. Um, I mentioned that Joe Montana team. The the Niners won their first Super Bowl with Montana. He'd win three more, and they didn't make the playoffs the very next season. So it's, the NFC is so ultra competitive more than the AFC. I think the Chiefs are going to have a long run at this and lots more Super Bowls. But the Niners, the Niners are going to have a lot of people, Cowboys, Packers, Rams, tons of good teams, uh, Vikings still gunning for, for what they achieved last night. Greg Brady, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Greg, before we let you go, a word on Andy Reid, just seeing a guy who's been there for 21 years get to the top of the mountain. Well, it's yeah, it had been a long push, and the guy's been through a lot of personal tragedy, and I think he's weighed that sort of, like we all do, that sort of work-life balance. And oftentimes, uh, I read a, a, an article about his wife this morning, and, and that work-life tends to tends to win out. And she said he'd worked harder this year, spent more Friday nights sleeping over at the office and at the Chiefs' uh, compound 
than he had previously. And this is a guy that's put uh, just just put a lot of heart and soul into it. And again, I, as I said, that family's endured a ton of tragedy with the uh, the, the drug addiction and, and death of their son. So uh, it cements him as a Hall of Famer for me. Um, there's no, it, it shouldn't have had to have come to that. And he probably is getting to the Pro Football Hall of Fame anyway. But yeah, really late in his career, uh, a guy that was has constantly and some of it's been fair criticized for in-game management, criticized for use of timeouts. Um, and and if Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs and that team had only put up ten points last night, if that game ends twenty to ten, we're wondering why Andy Reid couldn't squeeze more juice out of uh, out of an amazing talent like Mahomes. But it didn't happen that way. They got twenty one fourth quarter points in the last nine minutes, and it's a, it's a happier conversation about Andy Reid today. Greg, thanks for having that conversation. Mike, anytime, anytime. Last nine minutes, and it's a it's a happier conversation about Andy Reid today. Greg, thanks for having that conversation. Mike, anytime, anytime. Greg Brady from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. The Queen's approval rating is at a number that has been called by Global News unwavering. If we go back to 2016, an Ipsos poll has been done wondering just how Canadians feel about the monarchy, whether it's reigning Queen Elizabeth II, whether it is the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Are they still that? Are they still the... I don't keep up with the royals because I don't care. But the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, if that's what they still are, how people are feeling about that. But I know that this is an interesting topic. And so... It's good to talk about it. I need the help, though, of Gregory Jack of Ipsos right now. He is, of course, their vice president of public affairs and joins us on London Live. Greg, how are things? Good. How are you? Not too bad. So let's begin with the queen herself and the approval rating in Canada. Just how high does that approval rating go? Well, we've got about uh, eight and ten Canadians who are saying they, you know, somewhat support or strongly support the uh, the work that uh, Queen Elizabeth has done in her role as as Queen of uh, Canada and, and head of state. Why do you feel this is an important question to ask Canadians? Well, I think that you know Canadians are always interested in talking about the monarchy, and we've seen a lot of interest in this poll. Obviously, it's been in the news lately with Harry and Meghan's decision to step back. Um, and then there's been other things in the news around the monarchy as well. Canadians are, are interested in this, and you know our poll shows that uh, the Queen's popularity, as you, as you mentioned, is unwavering. It's as strong or not stronger, if not stronger, than it was in 2016 and, and 2010. What we do see, however, is that she's out polling the monarchy. Her approval rating or support rating is stronger than that of the monarchy, and when we ask Canadians, uh, if the monarchy should have a, a daily role in people's lives, that number drops to about 6 in 10. And when we ask them if the monarchy should continue after Queen Elizabeth's reign has ended, uh, Canadians are split. A small majority, 53%, think that we should cut ties with the monarchy at that point. So there's a lot less consensus around that. But when it comes to the Queen herself, Canadians uh, are very supportive of, of her role and, and the job she's done. Now, that's fascinating. We know that even if we go back to 2016, the approval rating of Queen Elizabeth II has kind of stayed the same and has stayed very strong. How about those other numbers? Are they changing? Are we seeing that kind of come up in terms of the number of people feeling that the monarchy should go after her reign? Well, we don't have tracking going back on that particular question, but I would expect, uh, you know, as we've seen discussion around the monarchy in the news and as we've seen... um, 
you know, Canadians wondering what's going to come next and thinking about the possibility of Prince Charles, I think they're starting to turn their minds to that. And I would imagine that there's some divided opinion. I mean, if you look across the country, uh, not surprisingly, Quebec is the most likely to say that we should uh, sever ties. And also not surprisingly, older Canadians are more likely than the younger Canadians to, to say that we should continue. We are talking about an Ipsos poll looking at the monarchy and asking several questions about it. Gregory Jack with us, Ipsos Vice President of Public Affairs. Gregory, you also looked at Prince Harry and Meghan. And uh, do we know whether, do you know offhand whether they're still the Duke and Duchess of Sussex? I really, I don't. I don't, uh, yeah, neither do I. So I'll find that out at some point. But what are you seeing in terms of their or their reaction of Canadians to them? Well, they're uh, equally popular in the sense that Canadians are supportive, 8 in 10 are supportive, of their decision to step back from day-to-day working uh, duties with the royal family. So Canadians are are feeling like that was their decision to make, and they support it. They also are excited about the idea of, uh, you know, Harry and Meghan spending part of their time in Canada. Most excited are in B.C., and the least excited on the other side of the country in, in, uh, in the Atlantic. Where Canadians aren't as supportive is around the idea that we should be paying part of their security costs. And only 3 in 10 Canadians actually think that we should be. That number is higher, uh, oddly enough, among younger Canadians, those 18 to 24, where 47% think that we should be you know, paying part of their security. If you look at other Canadians, so those 34 and up, basically, that number drops to almost 2 in 10. So Canadians are excited to have them uh, coming here. They're excited about the prospect of them spending part of their time in Canada, but they don't feel that the taxpayers should be footing their security bill. Isn't it interesting to see that young people are feeling that, you know, they're more inclined to say, sure, pay a little security money, that's okay, instead of the older people who, if we look at uh, at the approval rating, are, are kind of you know more into the approval rating. Yeah, well, you know, uh, one of your colleagues at Global News suggested this morning that that's partly possibly because younger Canadians aren't paying taxes yet, and I think there might be something to that. (laughs) I love it. Gregory, thanks so much for helping us to understand the numbers. Well, thank you for having me. That's Gregory Jack, Ipsos Vice President of Public Affairs. Yeah, if you don't have to pay taxes, you don't mind where taxes are spent. Eventually, we all have to pay taxes. We have an opportunity to meet the new executive director of downtown London. Please welcome to London Live, Barbara Malley. Barbara, congratulations on the new job. Well, thank you very much. I'm really excited and very pleased to be working with uh, the downtown board and uh, members and, and the great staff team that I've heard lots about. What was it that made you want to apply for this job in the first place? Um, actually, uh uh, the recruiting firm found me, and um, when, when they presented the opportunity, I thought, you know what, I had never really thought about doing that. But however, I think with, um, you know, my years of experience, in particular in economic development and business development, uh, I thought, hey, you know what, this, this would be a great opportunity and uh, an opportunity to take on new challenges and uh, Again, just build my network and uh, perhaps even connect my network that I have here to those who I will be working with in London. And by here, you mean Guelph? Guelph, yes, exactly. 
Now, London and Guelph, we're, we're good rivals in the sports world. I, I think we've got some good <laughs> partnerships and different things that go on. So what do you know about London at this point? Well, certainly the downtown, um, as I was reading through various reports uh, put out by the city, um, downtown, I, it, it's incredibly um, progressive. It, it's a growing downtown and I just I just see so many opportunities as uh, you know Fanshawe College has come downtown, um, you know Tricar is building new residential development. All the stars seem to be aligning for downtown uh, London, and I just I just think it's a, an excellent opportunity to continue to um, build that momentum and and move things forward. We are talking with Barbara Malley, the new executive director of downtown London, getting to know Barbara, getting to know some of the things that you know about London and some of the visions maybe that you have. When you look at the downtown of a city in 2020, what do you think some keys are to making it a success? I think collaboration is going to be key. I think a shared vision, um, making sure we're all you know going towards the same, uh, same path. Um, and I think it's it's going to be all about listening to members, um, understanding uh, what what their objectives are, understanding what makes them tick. Uh, that is is going to be key in uh, moving forward in 2020. When we look at London right now, you have been able to see Dundas Place built over the last little while, and now it will run from Rideout Street. It runs all the way to Wellington and becomes a Flex Street, which was a major project for downtown London. You talked about some of the high-rises moving in. One of the things that people will say is that there are a lot of people downtown right now that make them feel uncomfortable, unsafe, and they don't go down there because of that. Is that something that you see happening in Guelph or that you hear about happening in other cities? Is that a concern? Yeah, and I don't I don't think London is alone in, in um you know, the poverty um and and the issues that happen in many downtowns. I know certainly Guelph is experiencing that as well. And I think it's it's about rallying those social resources around those individuals. Um, to ensure they're getting the supports that they need. And, and I do uh, honestly believe there, there, there will be a solution and, uh, you know, again, we'll be able to help as many of those people as possible. Barbara, thanks so much for the time today. Okay, you take care of them, Mike. Barbara Malley, new executive director of Downtown London. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 